Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Today's episode, Two from World War II, tells two stories I wrote for Fall's Remembering World War II issue of Connecticut Explored. The first story tells how the Pratt & Whitney Company prepared for the coming crisis, and the second is about aviator Gordon H. Sterling, Connecticut's very first World War II hero. When Frederick B. Rentschler moved to Hartford to start the Pratt & Whitney Aircraft Company in the summer of 1925, his goal was to transform the struggling American aviation industry into a technologically advanced, efficiently managed, profitable enterprise that would rival the then world-leading European aviation industry. According to Mark P. Sullivan, author of Dependable Engines, The Story of Pratt & Whitney, Wrenchler's work as a military inspector of airplane engine manufacturing during World War I and subsequent experience heading the Wright Aeronautical Company had convinced him that his new company's success depended on following three principles, a passion for aviation, devotion to engineering and manufacturing excellence, and the need for a sound business plan. Wrenchler's vision soon paid off. By 1929, Pratt & Whitney's air-cooled, dependable engines were the choice of both the United States Navy and the emerging commercial airline industry, an industry itself largely shaped by the new United Aircraft and Transport Company, an aviation conglomerate of which Frederick Rentschler was founding president. With sales of $31.5 million and profits of $8.3 million, United Aircraft and Transport Company claimed to occupy possibly the strongest position in the aeronautical field of any company in the world. The Great Depression sent Wrenchler's company's fortunes in an entirely different direction. Military budget cutbacks, unsuccessful research and development initiatives, and Pratt & Whitney contract losses to competitors were compounded by negative Senate hearings on lucrative airmail contracts, which made the aviation industry and leaders such as Rentschler appear to be gouging the U.S. Treasury at a time when many Americans went hungry. President Roosevelt canceled all airmail contracts, and the commercial aviation industry went into a tailspin. According to the Pratt & Whitney aircraft story, total United States military expenditures on aviation in 1938 
were only $122 million, less than the cost of one Boeing 787 today. And the aviation industry's total asset base had shrunk to $125 million, hardly the value of any one of America's national breweries at the time. The situation at Pratt & Whitney was bleak. In the fall of 1938, the company had only enough orders to keep the plant open until the following May, after which it would face closing the East Hartford plant and laying off 3,000 workers. Ironically, what saved the company, albeit indirectly, was a conference that took place in Munich, Germany, between Adolf Hitler and the leaders of France, Britain, and Italy that September. Led by British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who infamously claimed the concession would bring peace in our time, the group gave in to Hitler's demands to allow him to annex the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia. I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Returning from the Munich conference, French Premier Édouard de Ladier had said, if I had had 4,000 planes, there would have been no Munich. France, the world aviation leader when Rentschler started Pratt & Whitney, had fallen deeply behind in both airplane production and technology. Realizing that war with Germany was inevitable, the French government placed a $2 million order for Pratt & Whitney aircraft engines, followed by a succession of additional orders totaling $85 million within a year. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British Ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. From struggling to find work, Pratt & Whitney was now scrambling to meet demand. The company doubled its workforce, hiring 3,000 new workers and built a 280,000-square-foot plant expansion known as the French Building in only four months, using funds provided by the French government. When the building opened in late January 1940, the machine shop alone was so large that visitors were said to gasp when they saw it. But that was only a prelude. Britain soon followed the French lead, placing its own order for Pratt & Whitney engines 
shortly after Churchill became prime minister in May. I speak to you for the first time as prime minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country, of our empire, of our allies, and above all, of the cause of freedom. A tremendous battle is raging in France and Flanders. The Germans, by a remarkable combination of air bombing and heavily armored tanks, have broken through the French defenses north of the Maginot Line, and strong columns of their armored vehicles are ravaging the open country, which for the first day or two was without defenders. They have penetrated deeply and spread alarm and confusion in their chest. Behind them there are now appearing infantry in lorries, and behind them again the large masses are moving forward. After France fell to the Nazis a month later in June 1940, the British assumed their remaining engine orders and also financed construction of a new 425,000-square-foot expansion at Pratt & Whitney, which became the British building. President Roosevelt had reacted to the Germans' blitzkrieg invasion of Holland, Belgium, and France by calling on Congress to authorize the production of 50,000 military and naval planes a year eight times the industry's capacity only two years before. By October of 1940, when Roosevelt himself came to inspect the Pratt & Whitney facility, construction had begun on the American building, another 375,000 square feet of aircraft engine production space, supplemented by the North War and South War buildings, two on-site administrative facilities, Pratt & Whitney had been transformed in just over a year into a mammoth war production machine with over 5 million square feet of factory production and office space. Providing a skilled workforce for the Pratt plant was an equally mammoth undertaking. East Hartford's Pratt & Whitney 1938 workforce of 3,000 grew 800% to 24,000 by 1943. In a major recruiting effort, skilled and unskilled workers were brought in from across New England and eastern Canada. Beginning in 1942, women were recruited and trained as machine tool operators. The Pratt & Whitney recruits proved a dedicated group. From 1939 to 1944, employees worked 48 to 50 hours a week at a minimum, with no vacations and no shutdowns. We had a one-purpose goal, and we developed a wonderful feeling of togetherness, said factory worker Eunice Mills. Everyone was here to get the boys back home from the service. What resulted from all this was an astonishing contribution to the war effort. Pratt & Whitney engines provided more than half the horsepower used by the American Air Forces. 
They powered 70 different military aircraft, including classic warplanes such as the Corsair, Hellcat, Thunderbolt, and Liberator. Frederick Wrenchler's vision of what American aviation could be had had its ups and downs, but when the greatest generation's greatest challenge came, Pratt & Whitney was, dependably, prepared. What's the best way to make sure you never miss an episode of Grading the Nutmeg? Well, if you use a smart speaker like Alexa or Google Home, all you have to do is say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. That's right. Just say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. And in seconds, our latest episode will stream over your smart speaker. Of course, you could embellish with a little something like, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast on iHeart. And that would work, too. Anyway, you say, Alexa, play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Your smart speaker should connect you to the latest Connecticut history story on Grading the Nutmeg. It's so simple, even a child can do it. They play the Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Play the Nutmeg podcast. Our next story is about a man who woke up on Sunday morning looking forward to a day at the beach with his fiancée. And before the day was over, he had died as Connecticut's first hero in World War II. That man was Gordon H. Sterling of West Hartford, and this is his story. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Of the 17 Connecticut men who died at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, only 12 served on the ill-fated ships of the U.S. Navy. Five others were connected with military flight operations at the Army's nearby Wheeler and Hickam airfields. One of those five, West Hartford's Gordon H. Sterling, Jr., a not-yet-fully-qualified Army Air Corps fighter pilot, lived long enough to get an antiquated P-36 Hawk into the skies following the first wave of the Japanese attack and died guns blazing, diving in pursuit of an enemy zero. For his courage in combat despite limited training and against overwhelming odds, Sterling posthumously received the Distinguished Flying Cross, making him Connecticut's first officially recognized World War II hero. Born in upstate New York, Sterling moved with his family to West Hartford in 1934 at the age of 15. An active member of a local scout troop, he also thrived as a student at Hall High School, from which he graduated in 1937. Interest in aviation led him to Pratt & Whitney, where he worked on aircraft engines while taking private flying lessons. Sterling joined the Army Air Corps in September 1940. While flight training in Montgomery, Alabama, 
Sterling purchased a 1941 Buick Special, which he took to his new post-flight training assignment at Hawaii's Wheeler Army Airfield. There, the hotshot young flyer with the fancy car met 2nd Lieutenant Ada M. Peggy Olson, a nurse at the nearby Schofield Barracks Hospital. A romance followed, and the two became engaged. Sterling and his fiancée were planning a drive to a date on the beach on the afternoon of December 7th, but events took over. In the Japanese plan to inflict a surprise knockout blow to American naval power in the Pacific on the Day of Infamy, destroying the American airfields at Pearl Harbor was as important as sinking the Navy battleships. If American planes could still fly, they could find and follow their attackers. So during the first wave of the attack, the Army airfields were primary Japanese targets. Hickam Field, northwest of Honolulu, and the Ford Island Naval Plane Base were the first objectives of Japan's treachery. Scores of planes were bruised and battered by aerial bombs. Many of these were demolished beyond repair. Direct hits were scored on hangars, and these were badly shattered. Equipment and airplane supplies were reduced to smoldering ruins. Here at the Naval Air Station is grim and positive... 25 dive bombers were assigned to Wheeler Field alone, and within minutes of the 7.55 a.m. attack, the base was devastated, ammunition stockpiles blown up, hangars destroyed, and 83 of the 146 airplanes on the ground in pieces or incapable of flight. Over the next two hours, more than 700 Army Air Force personnel in the area were killed or wounded in the ensuing chaos. Only six of the planes at Wheeler made it off the ground. Witnessing the carnage, Gordon Sterling had a crucial decision to make. Though he had earned his wings, he had fallen behind in combat training and gunnery and was only qualified as the squadron's assistant flight engineer. Yet. Perhaps because of his car, he was one of the only pilots on hand when, in the aftermath of the attack, crews readied a few of the antiquated P-36 Hawks, the only planes still capable of flight for takeoff. Still in civilian clothes from the night before, Sterling watched as one sortie of four Hawks, desperate to get airborne before a second Japanese attack came, waited for one of the pilots to go to the hangar for a better fitting parachute harness. Realizing delay could be catastrophic, Sterling ran to the airplane and climbed into the cockpit himself. He took off his watch, handed it to the crew chief and said, see that my mother gets this, I won't be coming back. Led by Lieutenant Lewis M. Sanders, the four planes succeeded in reaching 11,000 feet altitude before the second wave of Japanese attackers arrived. Despite being overwhelmingly outnumbered, dogfights followed and the Americans acquitted themselves well. Sanders, after inflicting damage on one enemy fighter, turned his plane and saw Sterling in a vertical dive firing shots into a Japanese Zero. Then a second zero latched onto Sterling's tail, firing into the hawk. Sanders turned and followed that zero, and all four planes fought while diving for the water. Sanders pulled out in time, but Gordon H. Sterling did not. The fate of the Japanese zeros is disputed, though Sanders, who was there, says all three planes must have hit the water.
Gordon H. Sterling died a hero's death in the waters off Pearl Harbor, Connecticut's first World War II hero. His body was never recovered, though there are monuments to his memory at Pearl Harbor and Arlington National Cemetery. His fiancée, Peggy Olson, never married and remained an Army nurse her entire career. Sterling's watch and his car, which had sustained a single bullet hole through the windshield during the Wheeler Field attacks, were sent home to Sterling's mother. The car was given to Gordon's brother John, who preserved it as a memorial to his brother's bravery and memory, and it is still owned and cherished by family members. And in May 1943, the West Hartford Town Council voted to name its new athletic center Sterling Field. Little League games are still played at Sterling Field behind Charter Oak Academy in West Hartford, though one wonders how many of the children playing there know the story of the hero for whom the park is named. Thanks for listening. For more stories about Connecticut and Connecticans in World War II, order the fall edition of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. This episode was written, produced, and voiced by me, Walt Woodward. And I hope you've enjoyed the podcast enough to tell a friend about it and that both of you will join us for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg. <laughs>